Okay, a couple months ago, it might have been over a year ago, I shared with you about how when I was a little kid, I loved this one baseball player named Ken Griffey Jr. Okay, has anyone ever heard of Ken Griffey Jr.? Okay, he's retired now. You don't really have to be into sports to understand what I'm going to explain today. But I loved Ken Griffey Jr. And my brother and I both loved a guy named Michael Jordan. Have you ever heard of Michael Jordan? If you haven't heard of Michael Jordan, you don't care about sports, shoes, anything. Um, so my brother and I, you know, it, it's common for little kids to try to emulate their favorite athletes. And so I loved Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing. He had the sweetest, smoothest swing with a baseball bat, and I would always copy it. And he, he I mean, this guy, he would have probably hit the most home runs in the history of the major leagues if he had not been injured so many times. But he hit close to 700 home runs over the course of his life. Oh, for those of you that don't like sports, a home run <laughs> is when you hit the ball out of the field of play in fair territory. Okay. So, uh, Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing was unique because most baseball players like Pete Rose would always get down low and he would use his thighs and he would get like this. Ken Griffey Jr. stood up straight as a board and his back elbow was like pointing at the sun. And, you know, it just worked for him and he had this really smooth swing. He would step with his front foot, swing level, and he had the smoothest follow through. He knew as soon as the ball hit the bat it was a home run. So when he would swing, he would just walk and drag his bat behind him and admire the home run. So I had this thing when I was in like Little League and uh, we, the league after, well I played high school baseball for one year. I would copy that swing and I would pop and I would just walk and drag my bat as the second baseman caught it. And, <laughs> You know, Ken Griffey Jr. hit nearly 700 home runs. I hit, um, I think, four in my entire life. Uh, so I copied his uh, swagger, so to speak, but I was not as efficient or effective as he was. My brother and I were both the same way with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was known, he might still be, for playing with his tongue hanging out. He would, if he was flying through the air, it was always like this. So my, bro <laughs> my brother and I felt like what was going to make us like Michael Jordan was just <laughs> clank. You know, like we, we could never dunk, we could never really dribble, but we had that tongue thing down. And so we were, <laughs> we were able to emulate the surfacey stuff but not the substance of what made Ken Griffey Jr. and Michael Jordan great. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, were able to emulate the surface of these spiritual disciplines of giving and praying and fasting, but they never really got the substance of it. They, it looked like they were doing it right, but Jesus came and said, well, you're actually doing it all wrong. And Jesus never said, stop doing these things. He just said, stop doing them that way. You, you, you got your tongue wagging out. You're walking with swagger out of the batter's box. You look like you know what you're doing, but in reality, you don't know how to pray. You're giving all wrong. Your fasting stinks. 
And so he comes and he brings these three corrections to these things. So when it comes to giving, praying, and fasting, I want you to know these are still things that we today as Christians, we participate in, we engage in, but we do them in a way that makes us more like Jesus, not more like Pharisees. And I know it's been a sometimes a complicated and confusing conversation I've had to, had, had to have as a pastor sometimes to be like, I don't think you should pray like that. Or maybe we're fasting wrong. Or maybe the way we give is missing the mark because oftentimes people think any way you do it is fine. And that, I just don't think that's the case in Matthew 6 and Matthew 7. So we've looked at giving, we've looked at praying. Today we're going to look at fasting. Uh, before we get to Jesus' specific teaching on fasting, I want to just create some context so that we know what Jesus was speaking into in this moment. So uh, probably, I want to define or describe fasting really quick. Probably most of you, when you hear the word fasting, the first thing you, you either think, I don't know what that is, what are we talking about? Or you think, oh, that's not eating. It's just not eating. And the not eating thing, you're probably, you're about 90% there actually. There's, it is not that complicated. If you think of fasting as not eating for some sort of religious reason, you pretty much got it right. Uh, it's not this really complicated, uh, difficult thing to understand. So here are a couple uh, other resources that will help us understand a little bit about fasting. So the Zondervan Study Bible defines fasting as to refrain from food for a longer than normal period. Okay, I think they were giving us the most basic definition with no spiritual implications. Because, did you, you know, do you know why we call breakfast breakfast? It's to break fast. You know, you go, depending on how late you eat at night, but you go a couple, you know, that's the longest period of the day that you probably go without eating is when you're asleep, if you're normal. So... You know, you wake up, it's been 10, 12 hours maybe since you've eaten, so you're breaking a fast, they call it breakfast. So, in that sense, uh, this definition absolutely fits. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who is a pastor in Philly for over 30 years, he just defines it this way, abstaining from food for some spiritual end. Fasting always was connected with the mourning for sin and the repentance of it. Now, he's specifically talking about Old Testament fasting not the way they practiced it in the New Testament, which was slightly different. And both the Hebrew and Greek terms for fasting mean self-denial. Okay, so self-denial, really quickly, is when you yourself prevent yourself from fulfilling certain basic and valid needs. Okay, uh, if, if, if someone else takes it from you, you know, if you're uh, a prisoner or something and someone takes things from you, that's not fasting, that's them withholding. That's not the same thing. Self-denial is that you are the one making this decision. Now, uh, I wanted to just create our own definition of fasting here at Truvine, which I think takes into consideration all of the biblical passages that speak about fasting. So voluntarily abstaining from food or other valid needs and comforts for spiritual purposes. So fasting has to be voluntary, meaning you choose to do it. If someone else is forcing you to do it, it's not fasting. It, or at least, I should say, it doesn't honor the essence of a Christ-like fast if you're being forced to do it against your will. But if you are voluntarily and willfully doing it, you are at least on a good, the good, a good road to honoring the essence of a biblical fast. So, abstaining from food or other valid needs. 
So most, the most common type of fast in the Bible is to fast from food, but there were other things that they would fast from. So when Jewish people would fast in the Bible, they not only would abstain from food, but they would often abstain from uh, drink sometimes. They would not, if, it was, if men would not shave, they would not bathe, um, and they would not wash their clothing. And so you could tell someone is fasting, not just because their stomach was growling, but they probably stunk and looked a mess. Scraggly beard, dirty clothes. They would often abstain even from, can I say it here? Uh, intercourse, if you know what I'm saying. All right? I'm trying to make sure the kids don't get confused. All right. So uh, there was more to fasting than just not eating. It was a whole life commitment that they were making during that period of time. Um, and it's for, so, but here's the thing. <laughs> You're fasting from valid needs and comforts. Having dinner is valid, right? Taking a bath is valid. Looking at some of you, all right? <laughs> but when, I just want to make sure it's clear. We don't fast from sinful things. You're just not supposed to do those anyway. So, you don't, like, you don't fast from pornography. You don't fast from shoplifting. <laughs> you don't fast from lying. Like, those are things you shouldn't be doing anyway. Does that make sense? So, giving those things up is not called fasting. It's called sanctification. It's called growing in holiness. And you, we're all expected to do those things on a regular basis. Now, uh... We do these for spiritual purposes. Now, if you decide that you're going to go three days without eating so that you can fit into your bathing suit, good for you. That's not fasting, though. That's a crash diet. Um, fasting has a spiritual purpose to it, and the spiritual purposes uh, can be many. It could be repentance. It could be con that you are contrite or broken over your sin. Um, it could be that you are waiting on God for something, but there has to be a spiritual connection there to why you're abstaining from these things. So we're going to get a little deeper into all that in a moment. But the most, aside from Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 6 and 7 on fasting, the most well-known passage on fasting is from Isaiah 58. And I want to read this really quickly just so that we're in the same mindset that the audience would have been in when Jesus taught these things. So in Isaiah 58, Isaiah, God through Isaiah is rebuking Israel for these weak, funky fasts. And God says through Isaiah, cry loudly. God says to Isaiah, cry loudly and do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. And then God starts talking about Israel. He says, They seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. So I want you to know God is kind of saying this like tongue in cheek. Like he's saying they act like they want righteousness. They seek me like they want justice. But they say... Why have we fasted and you do not see our fast? Why have we humbled ourselves and you don't take notice? 
And then God responds, Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and you drive hard all your workers. So on the days that they were fasting, they, they weren't practicing self-denial. They went after their own desire. I'm going to get what I want. They drive hard all their workers, making their workers work harder despite the fact that they were probably also fasting. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I have chosen, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I chose? And now God's going to start opening up his, his preferred fast. Is this not the fast which I chose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, which means don't avoid your family? When your light will break out like the dawn, then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, yoke is a burden. The pointing of the finger, which is accusation, and speaking wickedness. If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desires in scorched places. And give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of streets in which to dwell. So God is saying that the way they've been fasting is totally off and that he is calling them to the type of fasting that actually breaks yokes, cares for the, releases the oppressed, cares for widows and orphans, shares bread with the hungry, uh, fasting in a way that the resources you save while you're fasting can actually go to alleviate the suffering of another person. So he's calling them to that kind of fasting through Isaiah. So that's some of the context that Jesus is speaking into when he starts in Matthew chapter 6. So we're going to read, this is very, a very short passage, it's only three uh, verses. I'm going to read the whole thing here. Jesus says to them, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's, I said earlier, this is a pretty simple concept. It really is. This is not a, I don't think this is a hard thing to wrap our heads around. When you fast, don't do it in a way that gets you public, uh, acclaim and points and reputation do it privately and god will reward you when you fast so there are three different uh concepts in this passage that i want us to cover the first is that fasting is expected the second is that fasting is private and the third is that fasting is rewarded so fasting is expected private and rewarded 
why do we say that fasting is expected? Well, twice he says, when you fast. Verse, the, fir the first three words are, whenever you fast. Not if you fast, or you might fast, but whenever you fast. So there's a total expectation uh, from Jesus that we're going to continue fasting. But in case that wasn't enough, he says it again in verse 17, but you, when you fast. So there's this expectation from Jesus that we're going to continue fasting. Now, there was a point at which people asked Jesus, well, why don't your disciples fast? You know, because Jesus had a reputation for being a glutton and a drunkard. He ate with sinners a lot. And so people were like, well, how come everyone else's disciples fast and yours don't? And Jesus said, well, you don't fast, essentially, you don't fast during a wedding. He's like, they don't, you don't fast while the bridegroom is present, but when the bridegroom leaves, they will fast. So he's referring to when he ascends to heaven, which he did uh, 40 days after his resurrection. So we live in that period of time where the bridegroom, Jesus, is currently in heaven. So we live in the period of time where there is fasting for Jesus' disciples. I don't anticipate fasting in heaven. Oh, I feel like we're going to have to have a talk with management if there is. But um, I don't anticipate fasting in heaven, but we live in the period of time where fasting is expected for Christians. So, I think that means orienting our thinking that fasting is a valid practice for us today. Doesn't mean we're always, you know, going to be fasting 52 weeks out of the year, but it just means it's on the table. It is on the table for God to put his finger on and say, that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to do a fast. Now, inevitably, the question comes up, well, when should I fast then? If fasting is a valid practice that we participate in today as Christians, when should I fast? All right, here are a couple examples from the Bible about when a fast was called. So first is, you should fast during a spiritual crisis. That can be both personal or corporate. If you're going through some sort of personal spiritual crisis and you need breakthrough or you need clarity, Fasting is an appropriate option for uh, that time. And I would, just a practical tip, if you're going to fast during a spiritual crisis, that time that you're not dedicating to cooking and eating food, dedicate that to prayer and the reading of the Bible. Because if you're looking for breakthrough and you're looking for God's voice, well, why wouldn't you go here? Right? Right? Uh, if, you, if you fast and decide to pass that time watching TV, man, you're wasting a lot of hunger there. You know, you're going to end up at the end without breakthrough, without clarity, and just hungry and grumpy. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be good if you took that time that you're not dedicating to meal prep and meal consumption, put it towards seeking God. In fact, Isaiah 58 would even lead us to believe, take the money that you're not using and give it to something or someone where it could be used. Like it, it says, divide your bread with the hungry. You know, like the food you're not eating, maybe you give it to someone else. The money you're not spending on groceries, maybe you give to, to a food pantry or something like that so that it can be a blessing to other people, all right? Now, the spiritual crisis sometimes is not personal, sometimes it's corporate. In Nehemiah chapter 9, there is actually a corporate spiritual crisis in, of the people in Jerusalem. Um, they are rebuilding the city. They've rebuilt the wall. They're kind of reestablishing their Jewish culture. But they're still 
they're unearthing all these practices, like they are doing this predatory lending practice where they're lending to their Jewish brothers and sisters but this insane interest rate that's actually keeping people in poverty. So the systems that were in Jerusalem at the time were uh, advancing poverty, not alleviating poverty. And Nehemiah gets so upset about that, he calls the whole city to fast. And some of the fasts in the Old Testament were intense. Some of the fasts were like, hey, you're at a wedding, stop and fast. You have a nursing baby, that baby better fast. Yeah, oh, you think I'm hard. (laughs) Read the Bible. Make your animals fast. I mean, this was intense. It was serious. It was desperate because they needed breakthrough and they weren't as enamored with their own self-sufficiency as we are today. So Nehemiah and Ezra called the people of uh, Jerusalem in Nehemiah 9 to a corporate fast And it was a, the best way I could say this, even though Jerusalem is a city, not a nation, but it was essentially like a national fast. And it was their religious and political leaders calling them to that. You know, uh, the Civil War started in April of 1861, and it ended in April of 1865. So it was about almost four-year-on-the-dot war. Started in April of 1861, ended in April of 1865. The Civil War was a political crisis, a social crisis, but also a spiritual crisis because, I mean, think what would have happened if the Civil War had gone a different way. We would have two countries, one of which potentially would still have slaves, right? Um, Right in the middle of the Civil War, in April, of 1863, which is smack in the middle, Abraham Lincoln declared a national day of fasting and mourning. Within 24 months, the Civil War was over. That's, I mean, that's in his, well, it's not in history books, but you can find this online, even the text of the uh, statement, the declaration that he signed, someone else wrote it, but he signed it as president, declaring a national day of fasting and mourning. And I'm, I really feel like I don't think we're going to get it, but man, we could use something like that right now in the United States. We could use a national day of mourning and fasting where we brought up all of the old sins and confessed them and repented of them rather than defending them, which is what we're, I'm just going to go ahead and be a little political today. Both political parties are defending their choices of sins. And both political parties are leading us into heaping more sin on our national record than getting less sin. And what I wouldn't give for some political leader to stand up and say, we're going to stop defending the sin, but we're going to expose it, confess it, and repent of it. I wonder what would happen if we did that. I don't necessarily have hope that that's coming anytime soon, but I think that that would be part of the solution is Stop hiding this stuff and defending it. Call it what it is. Bring it to the surface and repent of it. Now, there are religious leaders that have been doing that for years, but there aren't any political leaders that I'm aware of that are currently doing that in the United States. Other countries have done that. Uh, I want to say that Uganda had a day of prayer and fasting and mourning. Um, you know, so that this happens in some places, but it hasn't happened here in, in quite a long time that I'm aware of.
When else do we fast? Uh, when waiting on or listening to God, uh, waiting on or listening for God. Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas, the first two Christian missionaries, are sent out. You know what they were doing before God called them? They were worshiping and fasting. That's how they made decisions. They didn't call a board meeting. They didn't take a survey. <laughs> they worshiped and they fasted. And that's how they decided who to send out for ministry in Acts chapter 13. So, you know, last thing I'll say about when to fast. I'm going to say more about this later. You should only fast when God prompts you to fast. Um, sometimes we are so religiously motivated and sometimes guilt and shame motivated that we call our own fasts. And I've been on enough self-imposed fasts, even, either as myself or as part of a group, to find those ones go horribly. Uh, when you call your own fast, instead of waiting on God to call a fast, you actually violate the essence of a fast. You, you take your own initiative and you make your own little spiritual agenda. So we only want to fast when God prompts us. I'm going to talk more about that later. So fasting is expected and we should fast during crises, when waiting on or listening for God, but only when God prompts, not at our own initiative. Secondly, fasting is private. This is, I think, really clear from the passage. I mentioned earlier that when they fasted, they not only gave up food, but they, if men wouldn't shave, everyone wouldn't bathe, they wouldn't wash their clothing, and there would be other things. And, uh, you know, you could tell a person was fasting even if they didn't say anything about it. You could tell by looking at them or smelling them or checking out what they were wearing that they were fasting. Now, they're not, they weren't commanded necessarily to do all of that, but here's what Jesus says. Uh, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. I don't, have you ever fasted and you just walk around like your purpose in life has been taken from you? Um, gloom, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they neglect their appearance so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Uh, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Like, take a bath. Shave. Change your clothes. You don't have to stink to prove to everyone how spiritual you are. Uh, so that your fast, uh, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Uh, I, I, this is such a fascinating idea to me because um, it's the third spiritual discipline in a row where Jesus has corrected the public disuse of it, or misuse of it. It's a, you know, first was giving. Remember, they would uh, blow, they, he said, when you give, don't blow a trumpet to draw attention to what you're giving. When you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites and the pagans. And now he's saying, when you fast, don't draw attention to it with your appearance, but do it privately. And Jesus is calling them to a private spirituality that has public fruits or public consequences. This is spiritual renewal but it leads to social change. Look at, go back to Isaiah 58. The type of fasting that God was calling Isaiah to was private fasting, but it helped the poor and the needy and the broken and the oppressed. It all had external consequences to it, but you don't, the external results of fasting aren't getting you a pat on the back. 
It's freedom for other people. It's breakthrough. It's emancipation. Uh, you don't want to draw attention to it. I can just picture myself during a fast if, you know, Glenn says to Israel, hey, Israel, you want to go out for lunch today? I'd be like, sorry, guys, I can't go. I'm fasting. And Glenn would be like, well, I didn't invite you. I'd be like, well, I just want you to know I couldn't anyway because I'm fasting. You know, like, I've, we want to not do things like that. We don't want to draw attention to it. Um, now, that doesn't mean you have to lie. <laughs> if someone says to you, I notice you haven't eaten in the, in the last week, are you fasting? You don't have to lie, like, uh, uh, no. You can say, I am. But, you know, it's, does that make sense? You don't have to deny it, just don't broadcast it. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. I mean, chances are, if you're like me, you're grumpy anyway, so if you're fasting, and people will figure it out that way. All right, so fasting is expected. Fasting is private. Now, uh, David Schroeder, who wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew, wrote this. The truly, for the truly devout person, the value of fasting is not in the public acclaim that it gains, but the reward received from the Father, who should be the only audience of fasting. Which leads us to the third point. Fasting is rewarded. God rewards fasting. Now, you can get your own reward by making it public and making a show of it, or you can trust God for a reward. But it says in verse 18, so, uh, you know, wash your hands, wash your head and note your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I said this a few weeks ago. We have to embrace the biblical idea of reward. There are rewards that God gives. We, we've looked at it multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the Beatitudes. It's in the teaching on prayer. It's in the teaching on giving. It's in the teaching on fasting. That God rewards those who diligently seek him. Now, God's rewards might not be the same as the rewards that we would line up if we were leading a heavenly reward system. Um, and this is where it comes down to whether you trust God or not to be the one who hands out the rewards. Because he, he, might not re he may, but he might not reward you with something physical. He might reward you with humility. He might reward you with more patience. He might reward you with anointing. He might reward you with favor. So it's not, it probably isn't going to always be what you would reward yourself with, if that makes sense. Um, the reward, this is James Montgomery Boyce again. The reward that you're most likely to receive is the Father's presence and the revelation of his will. The reward for obeying God and seeking God is not stuff, it's God. You get more of God. You hear his voice. You get clarity. You can feel the closeness that you have with God. The reward is him, not stuff. And you have to trust that God's going to hand out the rewards that, you, uh, that he sees fit and that it's not going to be the rewards you would necessarily pick for yourself. Does that make sense? Okay, good. But it is rewarded. I want you to know that when you pray in secret or pray in private, God rewards that. 
Like, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm still motivated by the reward promises in the Bible. I don't know how it's all going to turn out, and I can't necessarily say this happened because I did that. Or, you know, I, I, don't, I, can't, I don't understand all that. I just, for some reason, the reward system clicks for me. Um, God rewards us when we pray privately, give secretly, fast privately. He rewards it. Um, now, I want to talk really quickly in the last couple minutes about how we should fast. Uh, you know, obviously, it's expected, it's private, it's rewarded, but how should we fast? If we're going to go about doing a fast, how should we do that? First, fasting at your own initiative is spiritually dangerous. In fact, doing anything at your own initiative is spiritually dangerous. Um, you know, John 15, which is one of the passages our church, you know, that's the I am the true vine passage, which our church finds a lot of depth in, is all about not doing things on your own initiative. Even Jesus himself said, I do nothing of my own initiative. I only do what I see the Father doing. If you decide, I'm going to go home and pray for five hours, and that's your idea, after 20 minutes, you will be so tired of it. Uh, and, and by the first hour, you'll be like, I want to quit. The only thing that will keep you going for four more hours is religious guilt and shame. And if, even if you make it through the five, you, first, you'll start compromising. I know it. You'll be like, well, you know, I prayed for my breakfast, so add five minutes. And uh, I was at church for an hour, and someone was praying, add an hour. You're going to start compromising. If you make it five hours, you're either going to be like, good job, or you're going to hate prayer and not want to do it again. This is just something I've learned following Jesus for 25 years. Jesus releases the power to do something when he's initiating it, not when you're initiating it. So when, there is an ex when Jesus calls you into an extended period of prayer, he gives you the power for it to do it then, not when you decide you want to do it. Does that make sense? And, and you'll find that that extended period of prayer is delightful and joyful, and you're surprised how fast it went. The same is true of fasting. The same is true of sacrificial giving. The same is true of serving. When Jesus decides now is the moment, the most churchy way to say this would be, he releases the grace for you to do it. But the less churchy way to say it would be, he provides the power for you to do it then, when he says to do it. You don't put that on your to-do list and say, I'll get to that when I have time. You've forfeited now the power that you needed to get through that. Now you just have the sense of religious obligation and duty that you have to provide your own power for, and you'll end up hating prayer, hating fasting, because you're doing it in your own strength. Does that make sense? So I almost feel, <laughs> I almost feel unpastoral when sometimes I have to talk people out of fasting. Because I'm like, you know, I'm not sure that's what God's saying right now. And I feel like if we do this, everyone's going to be miserable. Because I, I don't, I, I mean, I get it's a good idea, but I, I just, maybe we should wait on the Lord for that and see if that's what we should do. Where, whereas other times, it's clear that God is saying, right now is the time for a fast. And you do it, and he provides the strength and the power for it. 
So, first, fasting at your own initiative is spiritually dangerous. Second, a personal issue requires a personal fast. A group issue requires a group fast. If there's something that's going on in your life and you need breakthrough, fast. Go for it. If there's something that's happening at a group level, so if it's like if we were experiencing an issue as a church, the whole church should fast. If there was something that was national, the whole nation should fast. You want to keep those straight because uh, if you're going through a personal issue and you think a thousand other people should fast with that over that, you're going to create a thousand guilt and shame-ridden other people. Uh, personal issues call for personal fasts. Corporate issues call for corporate fasts. Third, uh, establish guidelines before you start the fast. I still screw up with this all the time. What you want to do is before you start the fast, know what the fast entails, how long it's going, uh, what you're going to do with it. Have your goal or, or your objective clearly stated up front. I want to get closer to God or I need breakthrough in my family or you know, whatever it is. But you want to determine these things ahead of time, uh, not when you're hungry. If you don't set the guidelines up, you know, you're like, I'm just going to fast for a while. Man, I'm like, I'm going to fast uh, burgers for lunch and get right back to it by dinner. You want to, if you're fasting, you want to say, here's how long it's going to go. Because the first time you're hungry, you're going to start to compromise. You're like, well, I never really did say how long this fast was going to be. I never really did say what I'm giving up. So, uh. You start off with a total fast, right? By breakfast, you're like, I'm fasting. I'm fasting. I'm going to fast till I get breakthrough. By lunch, you're like, well, it's a Daniel fast. It's a Daniel fast. I'm just not going to have meats and sweets. I'll still have a salad or, you know, French fries for lunch. By dinner, you're like, well, I, I didn't really say how long I'm fasting. So I already fasted breakfast. I did a Daniel fast for lunch. It's time to celebrate breakthrough at dinner. You know. Okay. So this is. <laughs> I can tell many of you have done this. <laughs> Not just me. <laughs> but I know when I'm on a Daniel fast, I start to discover what things aren't don't have meat in them. I'm like, well, McDonald's fries. You know, like that's a vegetable. Um, uh, anyway, so you want to set the guidelines ahead of time, you know, like determine how long the fast is going to be for what type of fast. Are you fasting all food and just going with water and juice for five days? Or are you doing what's called a Daniel fast from the book of Daniel where he gave up meats and sweets and it was basically like a vegan or vegetarian thing? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different ways, and I I'm not getting into all that today. There's a lot of different ways to fast. What you want to do, though, is I would even say write that stuff down and stick with it during that period of time and then have your purpose clearly stated. Why are you fasting? Are you fasting because you need breakthrough in your family? Because that's going to guide the way you pray. It's probably also going to guide the passages that you read. Are you fasting because you are stuck in a sin and you need freedom from that sin? Make those purposes clear so that you know why you're fasting. It would not be bad. When I do a fast, I put everything in my journal. 
just so that I can go back to that and stick with it. And there's less uh, gray area for compromise and stuff like that, okay? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. They're going to lead us in uh, a song of dependence on God. Because the essence of a Christ-centered fast and a biblical fast is going to lead us to dependence on God. And then Andrew's going to pray for us and dismiss us. So would you mind standing with us? Jesus, we don't want to just participate in these spiritual disciplines like giving and praying and fasting so that we can look religious. We want to do these things to be more like you. Uh, all of these are gifts given to us to make us more like Jesus, more like you, Lord. So I pray that when we give, when we pray, when we fast, that we would not do these things in a way to bring honor and glory to ourselves and forfeit a heavenly reward. I pray that we would do these things in a way that glorifies you, that causes our light to break out and shine forth, uh, that makes us more like Jesus in all of the spiritual disciplines that we practice. And I ask that in your name, Lord. Amen.